Let's get started. As you might have noticed before church, we, uh, we had the scrolling announcements um, kind of revolving on the slideshow. And part of that is because uh, I just kind of recently found out that not very many people are opening the emails. We send out the emails with all the announcements. We do that just to get all the information out there. But a lot of people, and I do the same thing, so I'm not like pointing any fingers, but you know, you, it pops up on your phone during the day. You're like, oh, I'm totally going to read that tonight. And then by the time you get home, you forget, you know. Esther, usually, Esther and Steph usually do the emails, so if they're long-winded, I swear it's not me this time. But we're trying to avoid using the classic bulletin, you know, just wasting paper every week just to make sure the announcements get out. So check out the screens and, uh, and check the emails for, for what's going on. And kind of in that light, uh, I looked up this week something they call bulletin bloopers. These are supposedly things that were really put in Real church bulletins, and people have collected them and submitted them. I'm going to read a couple. The outreach committee has enlisted 25 volunteers to make calls on people who have not yet, uh, who are not yet afflicted with any church. <laughs> I'm assuming it was supposed to say affiliated, afflicted with any church. <laughs> Next Sunday, Miss Vincent will be the soloist for the morning service. The pastor will then speak on it's a terrible experience. <laughs> That's a good one. Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. <laughs> During the absence of our pastor, we enjoyed the rare privilege of hearing a good sermon by E.J. Stubbs. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. The pastor would appreciate if ladies of the congregation would lend him their electric girdles for the pancake breakfast next Sunday morning. <laughs> I would love to see an electric girdle. Thursday at 5 p.m., there will be a meeting of the Little Mothers Club. All ladies wishing to become little mothers will meet with the pastor in his study. <laughs> no way. No way did that get printed. The ladies of the church have cast off clothing of every kind. They can be seen in the church basement Saturday. Scouts are saving aluminum cans, bottles, and other items to be recycled. Proceeds will be used to cripple children. <laughs> I, there's no one. Oh, this one's great. The low self-esteem group will be meeting Thursday, 7 to 8.30. Please use the back door of the church. <laughs> oh, that is so bad. Last week, Reverend Brown spoke briefly, much to the light of the audience. Weight Watchers, oh, this one's bad too. Weight Watchers will meet at 7. Please use the large double doors at the side entrance. Gene will be leading a, will be leading a weight management series Wednesday night. She uses the program herself and has been growing like crazy. I'm assuming that means like spiritually growing. The, the, bean, the bean supper will be held Tuesday evening in the church. Music will follow. Thursday night potluck dinner, prayer and medication to follow. I'm assuming it meant meditation, but this being Easter Sunday, we will ask Miss Johnson to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. <laughs> For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. <laughs> I'm assuming that means you don't know we have a nursery, but yeah. 
And since we're talking about corporate worship this morning, I thought we'd end with this. At the evening service tonight, the sermon will be on the topic, what is hell? Come early and listen to the choir practice. (laughs) We're in the third week of our series entitled Way of Worship. We started by talking about how we are designed for worship. We went back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Before there was any brokenness, before there was any sin, before there was any loss, before anything bad had happened, we learned that they were already put in a relationship where they were under something else. There was rules. There was something for them to follow, somebody for them to submit to and bow to. Uh, they, were, they were told you can eat of anything in the garden, but don't eat of this one tree. So the thing we learned right off the bat, and we talked about it this way, if my thing's going to work. Oh, there's our title, Worship Together. I told you two weeks ago we'd be talking about corporate worship today. We talked about this. You were not created to be the biggest thing in your life. Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, were not created to be the biggest thing in our life. We were created to draw toward and to something bigger than us, to sit under in submission to something bigger than us. If, if everything was perfect, if there was no brokenness, no sin, you would still not be the biggest thing in your life. You would not you know, have your way. You would not get everything you want. The Chiefs wouldn't win every Sunday. It, you, things just would not always go your way because you were not created to be the most important thing in your life. But it also shows us that we're wired to worship. And so the, the, the Bible, the majority of it doesn't become this story trying to encourage us to worship, trying to, to, to uh, convince us to worship. It becomes a story that's trying to tell us how to worship and who to worship. Uh, it, it's, we worship. That's just what we do. Like, and we talked about how you go to a Chiefs game and try to tell me that half those people aren't worshiping. They're like losing their minds, screaming their head off. You know, they're, they're, they're caught up in something bigger than themselves. We worship by nature, and God is trying to say, none of those things can hold up under your worship. None of those things, a lot of those things are great things, but they make terrible gods. A lot of the things we draw to, we talked about Job and how he saw the sun and the moon. And, and, he, and he was like, if I look at the sun and the moon and, and I'm drawn in my heart to throw them a kiss in worship, I would be in sin. We, and we talked about how, how it would have been so natural back then to see how important the sun is, how valuable the sun is, the things we draw from it, the, 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 how badly we need it, how important it is in our lives. And it would be so easy in that moment to, to shift that, that recognition of its value to worship. And we're, and we're tempted to do the same thing. There's a lot of things in our life that are great, amazing things. Money. Money's good. We can do a lot of good with money. Makes a terrible God. Money makes a terrible God. And so a lot of these things that we need that are good things, like the sun in, in Job's day, we have to be careful that we don't shift to worship. And so a lot of the scripture is about God going, don't worship those things. They can't, they can't sustain you. They can't hold up under your worship. Point your worship toward me. And then last week we talked about the Torah, the first time that God kind of put a methodology to our worship, the first time he kind of stepped down and said, this is how you should worship. And we kind of cherry-picked through the Torah and we found all these verses that look, that sound like they have nothing to do with worship. Putting a railing around the, your, your roof so that if someone comes out on your roof, they don't fall off. You know, that when you're, when you're plowing your field with your ox, make sure you don't put a muzzle on him so that he can eat some of the grain while he works. You know, when you... Uh, I talked about how when a, when a man is newly married, he don't, don't take him to war. Don't, don't let him do anything. He gets one year to spend with his wife 
to make her happy, it says. That would be amazing. A one-year honeymoon. And, <laughs> and, uh, and all these things. And, and we talked about how the Jews would have had no way to differentiate which parts of the Torah were like the, the religious moral parts and which part were just dead. To them, it was all worship. To them, it was all the same thing. You could, you, there was no way to say these are the ones that we have to keep because they're, they're moral and ethical and these are just good ways to live. There was no guidelines for that. God just came down and said, here's how you live. And so we came to the conclusion that week that the Bible doesn't recognize the difference between church life and real life. To God, it's all worship. To God, we worship just as much when we're mowing our lawn and changing a diaper as we do when we have our hands in the air singing, raise a hallelujah. It's all worship to God. If we do it with our hearts bowed to him, the, the Hebrew word for worship just means to bow down. And it, it just means to, and it's, a, it's an active word just to bow. But what's ironic is in the Bible, a lot of times when it's talking about that act of bowing, the people doing it, it says, and they worshiped while dancing. So it's like they bowed down while dancing. So it's obviously not a, a body thing that you have to physically bow your body. It's a heart thing. And when we live our lives, our practical, everyday, real-life lives with our hearts bowed to God, it's an act of worship. The Bible doesn't recognize the difference between church life and real life. And I also told you last week that you had to catch last week and this week. Obviously, not everybody did. We're missing a lot today. But last week and this week kind of go together because you could walk out of last week and go, then why go to church, right? If obviously everything we do is worship, why wouldn't I spend Sunday morning worshiping on the golf course? If everything I do is worship, then why do I need to come to church? And that's what we're actually going to talk about tonight. This morning's message will hopefully answer the question, why is Sunday morning worship so important? And though there's, I have no chance of, of uh, covering all of this because we could spend a year talking about worship. It's, it's one of the main themes of the scripture. Um, I will, I'm going to try and do just kind of a brief overview, and it's going to be relatively short. Uh, they say that sermons are best if they're like a, a lady's skirt, long enough to cover the essentials, short enough to keep you interested. That's for free. <laughs> so what I hope to do today is first talk about why we worship together at all, then I'd like to spend a really short time talking about some of the parts of the service that we would typically call worship, the singing parts, the, 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 the preparatory parts. So let's start with why we're here. Why do we gather for church on Sunday morning? And we could say it's because we're told to. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. This is probably one of the most frequently quoted verses on why we worship, why we should go to church. But usually we focus on the imperative part, the command to worship. You know, don't neglect meeting together. But what I want to do uh, is look more at, at, uh, at the, the kind of peripheral stuff that the writer of Hebrews says. Motivate one another to acts of words. Encourage one another. There are 59 one another's in the New Testament. That phrase, one another, occurs 59 times. The Christian faith is a one another faith. And I would honestly, after 28 years of studying the scripture, be willing to put it this boldly. You cannot truly be a Christian alone. Sometimes this rubs up against our, our evangelical you know, a, approach to, 
to Scripture because we believe it's, it's all in assenting to the right list of doctrines. If I believe the right things, I'm automatically a Christian. And I'm not saying that you can't believe in Jesus alone. I'm not saying that if you're completely alone, you, you can't get to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you can't live the Christian life. You can't experience what the Bible calls the Christian life alone. I mean, what, I mean, Jesus said the most important commandments are love God, love people. And when he says it, he gives the love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he follows up with, and there's another commandment that's equal to it. So if you try to be a Christian alone, the best you can score is 50%. That's an F anywhere you go. <laughs> you cannot do it alone. Like the, the, the core command requires other people. This is actually fairly unique as far as worldviews go. If you look at other worldviews and other ethics, from whether it's in philosophy or other religions, most other worldviews focus on individual virtues, courage, strength, you know, self-control. That's, that's their, their like foundation. But if you, if you study the, kind of the New Testament worldview ethic, it's things like gentleness and humility and love and service, these things that require another human being to even be virtuous, to even express Christian virtue in the way that it's outlined, we need other people. Like our, 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 even the kind of, if you, if you try to break Christianity down to just an ethical system, take the relationship out of it and break it down to just the way you live, you still need other people. You can't do what, what makes a Christian ethic alone. It requires people. Jesus washed feet and he said, if your master has done this, then you should do it. You've got to have some feet to wash. To be like Jesus, it takes people. We do not have solitary virtues. See, that's the bummer. Is we, we have a tendency to break Christianity down to do's and don'ts that are like the, the really shallow ones. Like... And the bulk of Christianity is about this relational aspect, this thing that we do with other people, the way we treat other people, the way we, we deal with and, and love and serve other people. We have to have other people. We're a one another faith. But I think it's more than just having, when we talk about this scripture that Paul, Paul says, come, don't, don't neglect to come together so that you can encourage one another and I think it's more than just having cheerleaders to help us live a good life. I believe our, our, our worship actually shapes us as a people. I believe one of the reasons we have to get together is because that's how we get shaped into the people of God. I personally believe that Sunday morning church isn't as much a place where a bunch of Christians gather as it is a place where a bunch of people come to learn how to be Christians. That we come and we get shaped and molded by our time together, we, we come and we, we, uh, we learn how to be the people of God as we gather together. Well, there's this weird flip that's kind of taken place over about the last hundred years, maybe, in Christianity. If you look at Peter's life, Jesus' original invitation was, follow me. That's all he said, just follow me. And Peter got up and followed him. And then three years later, they're having a conversation and they're talking about, and there's been several times up till now that, uh, that they've doubted, they've gotten things wrong, and Jesus finally says, who do people say that I am? And they were like, oh, some say Jeremiah, some say one of the other prophets. And he goes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, I think you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus makes a big deal about it. He, he's like, flesh and blood is not revealed to you, this to you, but my Father in heaven. And he, and he makes a big deal about you got it right. If you think about it, so if we break that down, Peter followed and then believed. He followed for three years before he made this big declaration. For some reason in the church, we flip that. We stand up, we give a 40-minute sermon, we try to convince people to believe so that they can follow. We've turned it. I think what we do is we come and we gather and we follow. And then over time, it shapes us. It changes our hearts. We're, we're drawn into this deeper thing. We're drawn into this relationship with, with God and with other people. And, and a lot of times, and the, the bummer is because we put the belief part first and then the following after, there's a lot of people that, that come and, and might be curious. They might, wanna, they might dig what's going on. They might dig people, but we keep putting this pressure on them rather than just say, hey, just follow. Come with us. If you like being here, come with us. Follow. It might be three years before they believe. It might be ten years before they believe. Three years later, Peter made his big declaration. Does this mean that we don't believe in conversion? Does this mean, you know, mean that we, we don't care if someone believes or not? No, not at all. Absolutely those things are important. We care about them very much. We just believe that when we follow in the community of God, we worship together, we, we gather together, we spend time together, it shapes us and teaches us how to be his people. But this view will change a few things. We can have a tendency to feel that sometimes that worship is supposed to be this emotional experience that we, we have these feelings for God and then we come and worship and we pour them out. And sometimes that happens and it's beautiful when it does happen. But I don't think it's always that way. Eugene Peterson says it like this. Feelings are great liars. If Christians worshipped only when they felt like it, there would be precious little worship. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different. That we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Eugene Peterson said stuff so cool. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. I don't think I can say it any better than that. We worship because it changes us to do so. It shapes us into the people we're supposed to be. As we worship, as we let these songs get into our psyche, it changes us. So I'll say this. If you're ever worshiping and you look around and there's people raising their hands or swaying or getting real into worship and you thought, I wish I felt that. I wish I could become a worshiper. I would say you become a worshiper by worshiping. That you don't, you don't worship because you're a worshiper. You become a worshiper by worshiping. You, you do it. You come and, and you say, I'm going to worship today feels weird. It, it, I don't quite get it. I feel like everybody's looking at me. It's kind of bizarre, but when we engage in worship and we dive in, when we, when we throw ourselves into worship, we find ourselves becoming a worshiper. Which brings us to how we worship. What is the right way? Is there a right way to do it? Or is it just something we do whatever we like, whatever suits us? That's what we should do. It's almost like a guy I knew whose um, girlfriend, who had a new girlfriend, and he asked his mom, 
what he should do to, to impress her. And, uh, and the mom said, all girls love this. Invite her over for a home-cooked meal. Put on some music. Invite her over for a home-cooked meal. He said, okay. So he does it. And uh, the next day, the mom said, how'd the day go? It was terrible. I did what you said, and she wouldn't cook. Sounds ridiculous, but that's how a lot of us worship God. We come to worship God, but we only do it in a way that suits us. We, we, like we come to do this thing that's supposed to be us coming to God, and yet we come with all these prerequisites. I don't like that kind of music. I don't like that. You know, we come with all this, with all this prerequisites. We, it's like we want to come do something great for God, but we want him to do the cooking. Polster and statistical analyst George Barna in his book, Experiencing God in Worship, says, according to his polls, the main reason millions of people in America go to church every week is not to worship God, but instead to have a pleasing experience. He goes on to say that most Americans go to church to satisfy or please themselves, not to honor or please God. He said amazingly few people in the research said that worship is something they do primarily for God. The majority said they went because it made them feel good. They went for themselves. Not that that's bad. I mean, not that, I mean you can do both. You can enjoy it and worship God. I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying that in order for it to be worship, it has to be terrible. But how many of us are willing to worship either way? And believe it or not, the church is divided over this. Like, from basically the 60s to about 2010, historians and theologians and church leadership gurus call that the worship wars. It was the first time in history that people weren't really dividing over theology and big ideas and big doctrines and big concepts. They were dividing, literally splitting churches over whether you play a piano or a guitar. Like, it was... They, and they, they about 2000. 10 or so, they, they declared the end of the worship wars where pretty much any denomination or any kind of church you can go to and you might get hymns, you might get you know, modern worship and there's, there's no way to, to break them into groups anymore. It's just more, uh, everybody's kind of figured out it's more an issue of, of preference. But they actually call it the worship wars like it's that we would split over something so silly. I found this story, an old farmer, uh, if you like hymns, you'll really like this. An old farmer went to the city one weekend and attended a big city church. He come home and his wife asked how it was. Well, said the farmer, it was good. They did something different, however. They sang praise choruses instead of hymns. Praise choruses, his wife, what are those? Oh, they're okay. They're sort of like hymns, just different, said the farmer. Well, what's the difference, asked the wife. The farmer thought, he said, well, it's like this. If I were to say... Martha, the cows are in the corn. That would be a hymn. If I were to say, on the other hand, Martha, 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 oh Martha, 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 the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the black and white cows, the cows, the cows, the cows, are in the corn, are in the corn, are in the corn. That would be a praise chorus. (laughs) (sighs) Most church leaders recognize that the worship wars are over. But here... At Open Table, we're, we're trying to, our, kind of our vision for worship is to recognize that, that the music we sing connects us. It, it, it makes us, connects us to the body. It's what shapes us into the people of God. And so we try to do 
the latest stuff that the majority, the bulk of Christianity is singing every Sunday. And we try to make sure there's a hymn in every service so that we're tied into the, to the history of the church, to the thousands of years that have gone by that we're singing together. We've got some hymns we sing that are from single digit A.D., like we want to be tied into this stuff. And how cool is that to think we're singing something that Christians have been singing for almost 2,000 years. And the words are gorgeous and, and, it, and it connects us. It shapes us. And, and it, it works as a nice you know, anchor to, to make sure theologically that we're still comfortable with the words that Christians sang 1,500 years ago. They were talking about Jesus. And we sing those same words. And they're like, yeah, I still feel that. I still feel those words. Those words still speak to me. I'm still part of that group of people. So we try to sing the stuff that you hear on Caleb. Hear the tone of my voice. I make fun of Caleb a lot. And we sing the stuff that connects us to the historical church. But this still begs the question, why do we start our church service with singing? You could argue that it's because Paul told us to. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul told us to sing. He said, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But I think it's actually simpler than that. I think process matters. We have a tendency to, nowadays, Break everything down to its, its, its essentials. I've actually done this before. I've showed up late for church, and I was like, well, at least I got there for the sermon. Like, that's the important part. Like, I got the word, right? We're a microwave generation. We want everything now. We want everything fast. But process matters. That's why, that's why a meal with appetizers and, and conversation beforehand, a good slow meal is, is always better. Fast food will fill you up. It'll make you full. I mean, you could argue it does the same thing, but it doesn't do the same thing. Process matters. Taking our time matters. Our worship's no different. Jesus said, when we pray, he said, when you pray, and the word pray means go to ask. When you go to ask, start this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He hasn't even asked anything yet. He said, when you ask, take your time and worship first. Say something nice about God first. Like, spend some time. Don't, don't just go through, God, I need this, God, I need that, God, I need that. No, no, no. There's a process. Invest in the process. When you pray, don't start by asking. In Leviticus, on the Day of Atonement, I was actually going to read this, but it was way too long. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And when he got into the Holy of Holies, he would atone for the nation's sins for that year. We blew it. Here's the things we did wrong. But then after he did that, he would turn and he would bless the nation for the upcoming year. He'd speak life into them and speak you know, good crops and blessings. And he would speak goodness into the nation for the whole next year. But before he could do that, there was like a three-week process. A lot of the high priests would, would stay awake for two to three nights beforehand lest they accidentally dream sin and, and, and 
soil themselves. So they would stay awake to try not to sin before they went in. And they had to, there was all these sacrifices that had to be made first and this whole cleansing ritual. It was a whole day ordeal on the Day of Atonement just to get in and go, God, bless the nation for the next year. But there was a process. That, through all the scripture, there, there's this process that we do. And it's, it's not like legalistic, like if you don't do this, you don't. That's not what it means. It, God's engaging us in a relationship. He's engaging us in a, in a long dinner with multiple courses that he wants us to enjoy with him. There was a lot of preliminaries. Some say it's because we have to give to God before he can give to us. Some say that worship prepares our hearts so that we can receive the word of God like a plow breaking up soil. Some say that we're just inviting the Holy Spirit into our midst. All these are probably true. One thing I do know is for 2,000 years, the church has gathered together to sing. We've gathered together to, to corporately tell God he's amazing, to corporately pour out our hearts to God. It's shaped who we are as a people ever since the early church. I think it's just as essential today. So how do we respond to this? We're a fast food microwave people. And if I'm honest, if I'm honest, most of us, have you ever gone to get fast food and got frustrated at how long it takes to get through the line? You know how ridiculous that is? Or put in like something in the microwave, put in your coffee for two minutes, because that's how long I heat up my coffee, and sit there going, why is this taking so long? Two whole minutes. And I'm like banging my head on the counter waiting for two minutes to go by. We're not even a microwave generation anymore. Microwaves are way too slow. We can have a tendency to carry that impatience into church with us. But worship's not fast food. So here's my challenge this morning. Try. Try to savor worship. Try to engage in it. Try singing out loud, even if you're not a singer. Give it a shot. Sing loud. Like, belt it out. Raise your hands. It might feel silly. Give that a shot. See what you think. Close your eyes. Let the music wash over you. Right after Esther and I got married, because I have a tendency to feel like everybody should worship the way I worship, you know, or, or whatever. But when we first got married, we, we'd barely been married just like a week or two. We went to this huge conference, and there's 20,000 people singing How Great Thou Art at the top of their lungs. And I thought the roof was going to come off the place. I thought if Jesus does not come back tonight, it doesn't make any sense to me because this is amazing. And I'm like losing my mind. I've got both hands in the air, tears streaming down my face. I'm lost. And I look over and this friend we have named Todd is sitting there going, as everybody's saying. And me being the nosy type I am could not leave it alone. I had to go. So I kind of make my way around people and kind of get next to Todd and and uh, kind of wait till he can hear me a little bit. And I go, what do you think? And he goes, oh, my God, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like it. I can't believe it. God is so good. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can't. I guess I can't judge. Whatever that means to you, whatever it means to lean in to worship, whatever it means to, to give yourself to it, to... Have you ever eaten with somebody who's in a hurry and you're not? And how, you know, frustrating that can be? 
You're like, can we just sit and talk? Can we just enjoy ourselves? It's, it's no fun. Like, can you imagine what it must be like to God when we're like, okay, come on, four songs, let's get this moving. Try leaning in to worship. Try, try sitting down at the table and, and enjoying all the courses. Blaise Pascal observed that the people who have the greatest influence in shaping the hearts and minds of any generation are not the folks writing the laws, but it's the folks writing the songs, which I absolutely believe is true. They did a survey uh, years ago now where they asked a bunch of Christians to to list their ten favorite sermons, their ten favorite songs, and their ten favorite people. Or it it wasn't favorite. It was the, the ten sermons that had the most impact on their life, the ten songs that had the most impact on their life, and the ten people who had the most impact on their life. And the real survey was how long it took them. They didn't know this, but it was how long it took them to fill out each list is what they were really testing. Nobody in the survey could come up with 10 sermons that impacted their life. Most of us here, 40 to 50 a year for however many years, and we couldn't come up with 10, which is really frustrating with my job. (laughs) Almost everybody could throw down 10 songs. Nobody had any trouble throwing down 10 people. And we, we put so much stress on, on the sermon on, you know, did I hear the word of God? And it's important. I'm not saying it's not important. But what sticks with us, what changes us, what really affects our thoughts and feelings and imagination is, is the music we sing and the people we sing it with. That's what changes us. When we gather together as a people, and we come sad and somebody hugs us. And we come excited and somebody celebrates with us. I can't stop thinking about Alfred's Jeep. He took me outside and showed me all the retrofitting he did to his Jeep. And I'm looking at all my cars when I go home. And I'm like, I want to do that. I, wanna... I can't get that on YouTube. I can hear some great worship music on YouTube. I can't look at a friend's Jeep. When we worship together, it, it's people and it's music. And that's what changes us. Very few of us walk around quoting old theologians. I do, but not a lot of other people. It drives my kids crazy. My daughter ran out of gas, which I can't judge because I still run out of gas about five or six times a year. I, I cannot figure out what the problem is. But, <laughs> but now, because Socrates said all philosophy starts with this statement, philosopher, know thyself. And Augustine put it this way, God, grant that I may know myself, that I may know you. And so I've embraced both of those, and I now keep a two-gallon gas tank in the back of my car for when I run out of gas, because I know myself. (laughs) See, I drive my kids crazy. My daughter runs out of gas, and I go, let me tell you about Socrates. (laughs) Dad, can you just bring me gas? But most of us don't go around quoting old theologians, old philosophers. But almost all of us go around quoting old songwriters. We sing them on Sundays. We, we spent the summer studying David and how many of his songs are still sung 3,000 years later. Got to be the greatest songwriter that ever lived. Christianity is shaped as much by music as anything else. 
We like to think we're a theological people. Most of us go to church. Like we're, we're hoping they have the essentials so that we can feel okay going. But most of us go for the people and for the music. We go because there are people that we like. There are people we want to do life with. And we go because we engage in the worship. Whether you prefer hymns over contemporary stuff or vice versa, you can't separate the music of God from the people of God. It's been there from the beginning. Worship shapes us and connects us. So do me a favor and give it a shot. Lean into it. It's something the church has done for 3,500 years. Moses, after the people got to leave Egypt, first thing he does is sing a song and the people all dance and sing together. It's an old, it's an old part of us. It goes back to the very beginning. So I suggest you give yourself to that. See what it's like to throw yourself into worship. Let's go to the table. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you were willing to give yourself for us, that you were not okay being apart from us, so you, you got radical, you got crazy, and sacrificed yourself rather than be apart from us. Pray that our response to that level of love and grace would be worship, that we would be so caught up in that love, so caught up in that, that much love, that the only thing we'd be able to do is to sing about it and to think about it and to change our life because of it, that we would fully give ourselves to you in worship. Holy Spirit, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.